I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, we're uh, we're going to be recording an episode here with someone who is really smart. I love like, it. I don't want to. I don't want to like. I don't want to set the bar too high. But Julie, you're smart. Jer, say your smartest thing so then we can compare it <laughs> down the, like, later in the episode. Uh, Ontario is a center of the country. Uh, Julie, Julie has a graduate degree in clinical psychology. Okay. Clinical epidemiology. Okay. Okay. And currently finishing her PhD in behavioral medicine at Memorial University. These things can you seem like save like... some for the rest of us? What's going on here, Julie? <laughs> These also seem like like unrelated enough that you wouldn't be yeah. so smart to be that level at all of these yeah. things. Mm. What can like? I, I mean, it, we'll get. I, I would love to get into um, ease mindfulness, but before we yeah. do, how does one find themselves in the realm of psychology and? epidemiology. I feel like those are two very like different sciences that uh, rarely mix. Maybe I'm wrong, but like what, what drove you to both sides of the spectrum? Uh, That's a great question. And the honest answer is that when I finished my undergraduate psychology degree at Memorial, I wanted to go traveling. I didn't really know what the next step was. Um, That summer in August, the only program that was still um, accepting applicants was the clinical epidemiology program. (laughs) (laughs) So I I did that. That was um, interesting. It's uh, taught me a lot of research skills. It's a lot about patterns and risk factors and all that kind of stuff. But Doing that program made me realize I did not want to work in it. I didn't like it that much and that I actually wanted to do clinical psychology. So then I combined travel and my passion for clinical psych and moved to Scotland and studied clinical psych over there um, for a master's degree over there. Wow. Cool. That's super cool. So do you, so do you just really like school? I do other things. It's just these school things are ongoing as I'm, uh, you know, living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, totally. you got I mean, you got to be okay with school. You like, got to sure. You got to be like, you got to not hate it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I suppose there's some people that could, you know, like hate it, but just do it. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, that's probably but not that the case suck. with someone with three, with uh, you know, two graduate degrees and and yeah. and working on a PhD. I mean, like academic academia is probably just in your it's in your blood. You 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 kind of you kind of um uh, answered this, but like. What kind of clinical, um, what kind of like clinical practices did you learn in epidemiology that you felt could like translate very well to clinical psychology? Um, all of the research skills and like even some of the more technical, like 
statistical software coding, all that kind of stuff, I feel like gives you an upper leg when it comes to clinical psychology and mental health and talking about wellness and all these things, because you have those kind of like loaded for bare statistical skills that most people don't have. So you can back up those arguments a little, uh, a little stronger. (laughs) Okay. Hold on. Hold on. This is, this is interesting. What does coding have to do with epidemiology? Um, so for a long time, research basically was done, um, it developed as software programs developed. So now we can use artificial intelligence to basically build really precise models and analyze like millions of rows of data that otherwise would have taken like years or if not been impossible. And we can kind of like build simulations and and really Whoa. look at hypotheticals. And, and again, just kind of emphasizing the idea of replication and having more confidence in the science that's being put out there. So basically the quality of science is improving and um, as technology improves, it is one in the same. Wow, that must cool. be really interesting from a psychological perspective because um, like historically we haven't known that much about mental health. Mm. And so when you're able to start bringing that uh, sort of mathematical modeling into yeah. um, researching mental illnesses, is there like a new sort of, um, area of study that's coming out where people are trying to be more predictive and understanding. Well, it's like, like the understanding, sch- like it's like the schizophrenia happening. thing. Like uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but like AI seems to be able to predict schizophrenia in patients before clinicians even have any sort of like um, idea that that could be something that the, that a patient would be looking at down the road. And we actually don't know how AI manages to do that. We don't we don't know what the patterns are that they're seeing to predict schizophrenia in patients before they even start to present with schizophrenia, right? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable um to answer one of the questions about some of the like the tools, something new called network modeling that I only learned last year um my prof Chris Quinn Nihilus at Mun has a it's called the Love Lab, um but it's like basically redefining mental health and it has the ability to shift how we look at like everything and that rather than you know our physical symptoms being separate from our mental symptoms being separate from our financial health our sexual like all of these things are interrelated Mm -hmm. and we can use ai to map them out in a very specific precise Mm -hmm. way that otherwise we until this point haven't been able to do so is it is it like a more accurate because oftentimes we refer to mental our mental health and mental illness particularly it like as being on a spectrum but in reality a network is a much better way to think of it because when you think of a spectrum you think there's like one end here and one end here but then that sort of um doesn't factor in all of the additional factors or sort of experiences that a person can have. So when you're actually looking at a network rather than a spectrum, you're able to start to more precisely understand how somebody thinks or, or you mean like the, the idea of a spectrum is too one dimensional. Totally. Yeah. So like when I think of like ADHD, for example, which I have, like I'm, I'm on some sort of spectrum of having ADHD, but in fact, I have a lot of other experiences that influence the way that I think about things. So if, you're thinking of it in a one dimensional way where you either have it or you don't, or you have some sort of level of intensity of it, but you don't, or you don't, then that's a very narrow sort of frame to 
think of it in? Is that is that sort of what you're saying? You are exactly on the the right track with that. It's um we're just realizing that we can't study complicated abstract concepts as if they are so finite and that we, you know, the research to be quite honest that we've been using through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it's outdated. And we need to look at how we use technology and mental health, as you said, and in particular, neurodiversity. Mm. Um, there are so many more adults now being diagnosed in their 20s and in their 30s because they're realizing that their experience, you know, maybe didn't line up with those very specific criteria in the DSM or whatever that diagnostic manual that the physician or or provider is using. So now we're we're getting all these new diagnoses because people are relating to their their experience differently and I think it's a it's a positive shift. Mm. <laughs> why why it's do you not just TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think um why, why do you think that that that's something that we're coming around to uh in western medicine and western thought now when like and I'm 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 asking this question from the background of uh, and all three of us have have backgrounds in teaching yoga and like and in a lot of Eastern philosophies, like holistic medicine, holistic, like thinking about your body in a holistic way is a very, is very prevalent. Um, and it seems, and although, although those, those, those philosophies and concepts and Eastern medicine, like maybe something like Ayurveda doesn't explain things at the level of the scientific method that, you know, really solidifies it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, tr as a truism. Um, it's, a, it's something that, that has been understood at that level um, in some way for a very long time. And, it, and, it, and we're kind of coming around to it now. Um, now, is it just because we didn't have the tools to, to, to apply the scientific method to it? Yes, absolutely. I think that looking at something like mindfulness and Buddhism and some of these more Eastern traditions, um, you know, for 2,600 years, it's been that there's wisdom in the body and that we can, we can learn so much from self-awareness and, and turning inward and we're catching up to it here in the, the Western world. And in particular, the scientific community, the clinical world. I mean, if you look at physics, for example, that's been around for hundreds of years and we still don't know really that. I mean, we know a lot about physics, but there's still a lot we don't know about mm -hmm. physics. And if you look at psychology, that's only a hundred years. Mm, so it's yeah. still like a, a baby in many ways. Um, and I think that we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that a lot of the roots of these practices are quite sacred and, um, you know, often we've adapted them and it's only now that we have the tools to evaluate them scientifically to show that they are beneficial, um, from that kind of scientific evidence-based lens. Yeah. What, what are some of the cool ways that network analysis is being used to sh shed more light on, um, psychology? Um, I think it's kind of a hot topic in the sense that if you are perhaps younger, progressive into technology, you are excited to do your research this way because it gives you far better quality research. However, I do think there are also people on the other side of the coin that maybe are more traditionalist and have um, gone through a different academic journey that are maybe less inclined to want to try new things or new ways. So there, it, there is a little bit of controversy within the community itself, but there's a lot of fabulous evidence in particular for behavioral medicine, for health psychology, and for mental health and treating mental health. Like I think that even the way the DSM is modeled, so like the, the main diagnostic statistical manual, 
Um, I think that we will eventually see changes. I mean, will that take years and years? Probably, but I think that's not because the evidence isn't good. It's just that it change takes time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so something else that uh, you guys might not be aware is that Julie is also a pain scientist. Cool. Um, a topic we've been discussing uh, frequently yeah. as of late. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We uh, so uh, Taylor and I actually had the honor of uh, of speaking uh, at the the first Canadian pain conference uh, put on by Pain BC, and uh, we got to interview two women that live with chronic pain. Um, and actually, through that event, we all, were also set up with a conversation with a, a gentleman named Keith who lives out west, who lives with uh, chronic pain as well. Um, and Julie, I know that this is like, this was kind of the, the reason why we wanted to sit down and talk with you today. I mean, like we spent the first 11 minutes here just like diving into AI and, and <laughs> psychology. Um, I, 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 think, I, I think I already know the answer to this, um, but maybe somebody out there kind of sees that, okay, Julie is a, a psychologist. She's a uh, epidemiologist, or at least has those kinds of like backgrounds. Um, is looking into behavioral medicine right now. What does pain have to do with psychology? What does pain have to do with behavioral medicine? Uh, what does pain maybe perhaps have to do with epidemiology? So even to kind of take it a step back for a second and like, what are we talking about when we're talking about pain? Because mm. There's two ways of looking at pain. So there's acute pain and then there's chronic pain. And most of us grow up, you know, you break your leg, you stub your toe, ow, that hurts. You're being signaled by your body that you you did something to injure it. And then that chronic pain kicks in, um, you know, after a period of months of pain that it hasn't, that it's persisted despite treatment. Um, however, what we're noticing is that there's huge amounts of research connecting the pain system with nervous system activation. So then what's happening is that our body's ability to distinguish those data points and those signals, we're not hurt and we're not experiencing, you know, we're not injuring ourselves, but our body is producing pain as if we are. And that kind of leaves us in this state of, well, you know, as your previous guests kind of so eloquently describe their own experience, it's really just a downward spiral in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. it's um it, it kind of um <clears throat> speaking to what you said there about the nervous system and, and a piece that a piece of the conversation that we had with keith about about how uh for him <clears throat> stress is a big trigger for his for his pain and how yeah. mindfulness and training <laughs> himself to activate his parasympathetic nervous system his like rest and digest response as opposed to his fight or flight your sympathetic nervous system response is like really key for him to manage his his chronic pain because it's he 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 knows that his his nervous system is sending a is is miss is sorry sending a a sort of like a misfired signal i'm not sure maybe you could probably describe that better than i can um but he knows that if he manages that with mindfulness pr practices and mm. that he can he can you know really improve his experience of of dealing with chronic pain which i found fascinating yeah um, uh, chronic pain all in your head, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> right. How, how does that work? How does the pain work? How does it yeah, all like, how, so, I mean, no, I mean, with Jeremy saying like, it's all in your head and you're saying absolutely not. Like, what is it that you're experiencing during 
during that moment? Of the pain? Yes. Well, if you think about your brain as the boss of, of your body, of your mind, of everything, the brain runs the show. Your brain's only job is to protect you. So constantly it's a predictive problem-solving machine that's trying to protect you. So if you have a past injury, for example, you know, you tore out your shoulder snowboarding five years ago, and then, you know, may maybe healed a couple of years later, maybe it's a bit stiff, but it's mostly fine. And then, you know, life happens and then your partner dies or you lose your job or something like the pandemic happens and your nervous system gets activated, you get stressed, even though there hasn't been a new injury to that site, that old injury in the shoulder, this body system is so intertwined and tangled that those nerves all fire up. Your brain is trying to protect you, but then what you're experiencing becomes pain. And that can be quite scary because then you're thinking, oh, well, what did I do? I didn't do anything, but now I have all this pain. And then people become deconditioned because they're too scared to do anything, but then the not doing anything, it becomes a cyclical problem because their, their fear is so high that they lose their quality of life and their relationships suffer. Um, so trying to change the messaging around, like you said, being able to regulate our nervous systems and calm ourselves and, and identify that the pain experience, you know, it may, we, we don't, we can't control it. We don't have any control over that pain experience, but we can change how we relate to it. Mm -hmm. I, I have two specific questions about experiences that I've had one physical and, and one mental with pain. And I'm wondering if you can help describe what's actually happening in my body when I experience these things. So the first one is I tore my quad uh, muscle playing rugby and I had a full leg cast for three months. And then after three months, I did an ultrasound and the doctor said, you're good to go. You can start using it again. And I remember after about a month, I tried to go for a run and my, my leg just like wouldn't move. And I felt this like, sharp, like it would go to a certain limit. And, and in my mind, I was like, if it moves a, a millimeter past this, it's going to hurt. And so for almost a year, I had to slowly build up to being able to run again and every time I would go into the doctor, I'm like, it's still sore. It's still sore. And he's like, no, it's perfectly fine. This is a psychological thing that you're going to have to work through. So what's happening? Is is that sort of what you're explaining is happening when my brain is like using sort of has this like protective mechanism that's telling me, no, 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 don't do that. Sounds like he was trying to tell you that it's all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that you're, yeah, you're, that's kind of what I was trying to say there is that. The nervous system can't distinguish between what's real and what's perceived. And there's a great book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. And it talks about how sort of similar to what you're saying, but our pain system can get activated and it can feel extremely painful, but it's actually nothing physiologically is occurring. Mm -hmm. is is hard to wrap your mind around because it's not intuitive. And you know, where our natural inclination there is to then try to protect that arm or, or limit the movement there. But in some ways it is kind of realizing that ultimately starting small and, and incremental change, obviously, but you've got to start somewhere and, and building that mobility in gently and, and consistently. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. Crookshank.
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Is, really? is it still this? Is it the same mechanism at play? So the second example that I wanted to give that's uh, more of a, a a mental side of the mental side of things is during therapy. I will oftentimes do um, EMDR or like brain spotting. I'm not sure. I know that my therapist says that I do both of them, but I'm not sure when I'm doing either one of them. Um, but sometimes when we get into uh, diving into this like really traumatic past experience. I, my shoulders will sort of like cinch up and I like have this like tightness and this like this physical tightness comes into my body and we work at like spotting where that is in my body and then trying to like sit with that feeling as I try to process that that trauma is it is that the same mechanism at, that's at play as like the physical example Yes. And I, I, I love that you brought in that trauma piece. I think that's so important. There is so much research. Like, I feel like it's, it's almost like a contested, I mean, um, a kind of a recognized thing now that people who have experienced trauma are more likely to develop pain. And, um, you know, the body can't, again, if you think about your, your brain's job is just trying to protect you. So it, it, you know, you have that injury, that's where it's going to send those neurons are going to fire up that fight or flight mode is going to happen. Or even, um, sometimes we go into like a, a shutdown mode, which sometimes can feel like depression or can feel like numbness, but actually it's your nervous system just cannot stay in that fight or flight mode. So it just mm. has to literally shut down like a break. Yeah. One one example my therapist gave to me that I find is a really nice um, way for me to visualize it is we talk oftentimes of like my my memories being these sheets of paper um, that are like placed neatly in a filing cabinet and the the ones that contain the trauma are like crumpled up and so that feeling of tightness that I get is like this crumpled up piece of paper and when we pull it out and sit there we're like working on smoothening it back out as much as possible to get it to file away a little bit more neatly than before, recognizing that it's never going to be a perfectly flat piece of paper, but through trying to reprocess and build new memories and relate to that in a new way, it will make it a little bit easier the next time I'm experiencing something like that. And hopefully now knowing this, not experiencing chronic pain later in life because of it. Mm. I I want to I want to talk for a moment about like the prevalence of chronic pain. So like one of the things that we learned when we spoke to Keith and and when we spoke to Virginia and uh, Natasha, I believe her name was, um, was you know especially with Keith. It actually I I really it really kind of hit home in our conversation with Keith, uh, which was that you know I it, uh, I think it was very obvious that I was joking when I said that it sounds like they were saying that it was all in your head. Um, but for people like Keith, that is actually something that like his healthcare professionals have said to him in the past. Um, chronic pain is not something that has like really been recognized by the medical, uh, medical professionals, you know, worldwide, um, until like semi recently, um, or at least it's becoming more commonplace for medical professionals to like, uh, um, uh, 
recognize the fact that chronic pain actually is a thing. And I know that like one in five adults have chronic pain, uh, which is kind That's of a, a staggering number. Wow. Um, yeah. uh, you also have, have said to us that um, uh, it's being included as its own diagnosis in the ICD-11 revision. Mm-hmm. Um, what, is, what is ICD-11 and what does that mean for, you know, for healthcare professionals and people that live with chronic pain going forward? I think that's a great question. Interestingly enough, I was actually at the memorial. Um, we did a, a education day with the medical school for healthcare providers across social work, pharmacy, nursing, psychology, um, to actually talk about pain and and the the necessity of interdynamic teams of in a holistic approach. Um, but in terms of um, the ICD, so the World Health Organization, um, they're book is called the international classification of diseases. So it's in, it takes a long time to make an edit. It takes a long time for it to go through a process, but Mm. the ICD 11 version got edited to include pain and recognizing that it's its own disease. So we often think about pain as a symptom of something else. You know, I had a car accident. Now I have back pain or I had, you know, an experience. And the result of that is pain. The pain is this a symptom of something else, or it could be related to cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, migraines, fibromyalgia. There's so many different types of pain. It's hard to capture all of them, but this is finally identifying that the pain isn't the symptom, it's the disease. And, and mm-hmm. rather than, necessarily trying to seek out interventions to cure it, perhaps a better approach is practicing acceptance and management so that we can mm-hmm. still live meaningfully um, despite having pain. Why cool. is why is that important to recognize it as a disease it, itself? Because for it's impacting, like you said, one in five Canadians. So that's actually over 7.5 million, probably close to 8 million Canadians over the age of 15 that live with chronic debilitating pain. Most of these people, so through my research and through my work, I talk to a lot of people with pain for 40 hours a week for five years. I talk to individuals that live with pain. A lot of them were from a lower socioeconomic status. They didn't have access to massage therapy or physio or, or many of the, many of these people couldn't even, you know, put food on, like worried about putting food on the table for their children. So you can think about all these stressors, like kind of the point we were making earlier, if we think about network modeling is how do you pinpoint what's causing which thing when all of these issues are, are so related. And I think that seeing the individual and prioritizing the experience and recognizing that everybody's pain is a bit different. Um, It's a shift, but I will name that. I talked again, I talked to a lot of individuals that live with pain. That's what my research is in. And most of them are very dissatisfied with the healthcare system and the way it's treated. And they feel unseen. They feel unheard. They feel undervalued. They feel like they're made to you know, it's all in your head or, you know, it's a personal failing. Um, so hopefully with this ICD-11 and with these conversations, we'll start to normalize that. We need to update how we think about this and we need to start training providers a bit differently. Can is we, it, like, can we, can you talk to uh, the point about how pain is more than just a physical burden? Absolutely. So it, it, I mean, certainly pain is physically painful, but it's also emotionally um, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation are all quite common in people that have mm. chronic pain. Um, there again, a lot of people are unable to work. They, they run out of sick leave. They're, they're not eligible for, you know, 
Canada pension and disability, all these financial struggles and that they're financially struggling. They're, they're living in poverty. Um, they're not able to maintain a sex life. You know, I, I screen people as part of my research. I ask them a load of personal questions. And one of the questions I always ask them is about their sex life. And it, it always is like, a no one's ever asked me that, but yeah, this is actually a huge issue for me that like, I love my partner and I don't feel like I can be intimate with them because of my, my pain. So then yeah. it's again, working to how can we normalize some of these issues to, again, if it's one in five, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Is it that, um, like when you recognize pain as a disease and no longer a symptom, I imagine that if you, if the a disease is diagnosed and a symptom is pain, then there's not much more thought that goes into the pain because they're like, Oh, well the pain is being caused by this disease. But if the pain is the disease, then you can start to look at what are all the symptoms of the pain like these stressors, like using these mathematical models to better understand what is actually causing that. So that rather than treating it with like, you know, some sort of pill that is going to make you not feel that pain, but not actually get rid of the problem, then you're actually able to better help the person manage the pain. Absolutely. Yes. I, uh, I think that you have such a beautiful understanding of, of that. And I, I, hope that this reaches many people. So as kind of a society, we can start to empower people to take ownership of their pain and their health while also acknowledging that the, the Canadian system in particular has a long way to go. And I'm, I'm optimistic that I know some of the research I'm working on is really trying to improve things. But right now in Canada, there are places where wait times are over 4.3 years. Wow. For a pain specialist in Newfoundland, wow. where I am, it's it was at one point over 26 months. Um, it is a bit lower wow. now, but that's a long time to be waiting to be to be seen, to be heard, to be validated. You know, to because people are just mm-hmm. feeling isolated. And it's and 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 then I think that, like you said it earlier, kind of it's a it's a feed it's a negative feedback loop that that um that just that just compounds Ooh. the issue. Tell us about um I feel like that's a good place to I'm I'm really curious to know about um ease but both ease mindfulness and the work that you're doing at Center for for Mindfulness. Yeah. Okay. So I'm so excited to tell you about this. So I when I was living in Scotland doing my clinical psychology um masters. The research I was doing was on mindfulness-based interventions for anxiety. So in particular, I was looking at generalized anxiety disorder. So that is um, a type of anxiety that is centrally defined by uncontrollable worry. So you're just worrying about everything, and then you're worrying about how much time you're worrying. It's called made a worry. It's this big thing that many, many people deal with. And mindfulness is an effective um, intervention and strategy for that. Um, so when I moved back to Newfoundland, I started working with pain, um, and a pain population, um, out of just the job was available. And and that was how I was kind of introduced to the world of pain. But again, there's a lot of research between mindfulness and pain. Um, so flash forward to the pandemic, everything shut down. I, um, created a, a little business, um, basically doing education, teaching about mindfulness, um, trying to reach more and more people. And it's really grown over the past couple of years, I work with a lot of corporate organizations now and, and, and government organizations um, to really teach people to, I think it's more complicated than saying become more mindful. And I kind of mm. dislike how trendy mindfulness has even um, yeah. 
become, but there's a lot of merit and a lot of um, positive health benefits mentally and physically. I mean, I was introduced to it from my yoga practice uh, at Modo in St. John's. Uh, Rad. Yeah. And I I just started going, I had really bad anxiety myself. I found it really helpful. And then that kind of led me down that path. And now um, the center for mindfulness was kind of born because I was feeling frustrated with the system and the lack of regulation on a lot of kind of some of the buzzwords and social media misuse around mindfulness. So I wanted to provide an evidence-based training. So I got together with a trauma psychologist. Her name is Alison Penton and a mindfulness facilitator, Emily Lewis, who was trained in Ireland. Um, and they're both in Newfoundland. And we created this evidence-based trauma-informed training where we trained people. We trained healthcare providers and brain surgeons and and the CRA and, and police officers. Um, and basically just how we can regulate our emotions better, how we can be mindful of our our health and our experience, like you said, so that when we're feeling that tightness in our chest or we're experiencing something, you know, unwelcomed or not very pleasant, that we're able to deal with it a bit more. Because I think feeling empowered to have the tools to do that are what we need, given how long the wait times are for a lot of the the, the public care. It's like, it's something that <clears throat> oh my God, I can't stop clearing my throat. <clears throat> it's something that um, stop. You just don't. You just it, don't do it's it. Psychological, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't even. I can't begin to, um, to overstate how, how important mindfulness is in terms of like, in my life, it has. And this wasn't the goal. I got into teaching and practicing yoga when I was when I was quite young. I was nineteen years old. And it wasn't my goal to prepare myself for the heart to manage the hardships of life, but I had a very privileged and great upbringing. I didn't really have very, very much um, hardship uh, or adversity to deal with outside of like pursuing sports career. Um, and, and although Gabor Mate did say you were traumatized by your parents, <laughs> he didn't say that. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> no, he kind of pulled it anyway, anyway, and, um, and, and then, and then of course, of course, as you go through life, you are more likely to encounter hard stuff that you have to go through. Um, I got hit by a car, which was very physically damaging. And then, um, I, we, me and my, my wife and I went through, uh, IVF treatment, which was very challenging. And I really can't, I can't even begin to try and think about what that, what those experiences might've been like if I hadn't had been fortunate enough to kind of like fall ass backwards into a mindfulness practice when I was very young. And like, when I think about the, you know, the first couple of times that I got on my bike after I'd been hit by my, by a car while riding my bike and, and seeing somebody coming towards me with their left, left blinker light on and having, and like you said at the very beginning, like your, your nervous system can't tell can't distinguish between reality and perception. And in that moment, my perception those first couple of times was that car is going to turn left in front of me. I'm going to T-bone it. I'm going to get, I'm going to end up back in the hospital. <laughs> and because of this background in mindfulness, I was able to very quickly, like very quickly within a week, not have that feeling, that thought, that response at all. And, and I didn't even really have to try because it was kind of embedded in me already. And that's just, a, that's just a byproduct of being, I think, very, very lucky in how I came to it. Um, and so I just, 
it is something that I feel like needs to go down to like the level of kindergarten in terms of how people are prepared at the most like earliest stages of life to be, to have these tools embedded within them so that when those challenges come, they don't have to scramble for how to deal with it and how to manage it from a psychological perspective and a nervous system perspective. And it's just there and they are just equipped and there's obviously going to be work and there and and it might not be super easy, Mm. but the, the, the background like tools are, are there from, from a research perspective is because like, I think of mindfulness in sort of two ways. One is like a practice of mindfulness where you're like setting aside, you know, 10 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour to do this practice like yoga uh, or meditation. But then I also think it, of like my experience with therapy and sort of learning these tools to be able then to apply to my life. You know, when I realize that I'm all of a sudden starting to feel anxious and trying to, um, be more uh, aware when that that feeling is sort of coming on and then applying the mindfulness practice. Is it like, do, do you focus more on like the practice of it for a, a certain, certain period of time or like, and more like the integration of it? Like, how does that sort of work? That is a great question. I, um, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. I think everybody is very different and has their own experiences. So what will land will vary person to person, but we can think about mindfulness as having informal ways to practice and then kind of formalized ways, whether through therapy or through a formalized meditation practice, but then it could be something as simple as, you know, having a mindful moment and just paying more attention, eating your food more attentively, enjoying the little moments more. Um, A lot of the research does show that from a neuropsychology perspective to really strengthen those connections and some of the stuff that happens in the prefrontal cortex. So we become calmer, more compassionate, less judgmental. Um, That does take consistency and showing up again and again for those formalized practices. But again, they don't need to be long. Some research shows you can get benefits from as little as 10 minutes a day. Mm, Wow. So it's adaptable. (laughs) That's like, that's, that's one of the things that, that um I, I that I ended up kind of like disliking from I, I own yoga studios so and I and I I dislike the I dislike the habit or the the thought that that occurs from going to yoga studios on a regular basis that a yoga practice or a meditation practice like ha- it has to be 60 minutes or it has to be 30 minutes or like it's not worth doing it um and I had a yoga teacher years ago who was like, you know, if somebody knocked on the door five minutes before class ended, I'd open the door and tell them to come in because like that might be the most, you know, beneficial five minutes of their day that they, that that they need to get through it. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really great point of not putting a, you got to charge them full price, put full price for sight. I mean, I mean, premium, (laughs) a a premium really for having to leave the room and let them in. I mean, yeah. Disturbing the class. I get it. Yeah. Um, but just, not putting that expectation of time and how much time, like just getting it going at whatever the smallest amount that is manageable for you. Because what I think, what I think, um, and actually this is, this is a a question that came up in a teacher training I did one time when somebody said how somebody asked the teacher, how long do I, should I do this practice for? I think the answer was something like whatever you can. And then as soon as you see, the benefit of what you're getting from that, 
you will find time from something else in your life that isn't giving you that same benefit and you will reallocate time to do more of the mm. thing that you're seeing the benefit from. Mm. And that will build uh, naturally over time. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's so beautiful. It's uh, a great way to think about it. I think like getting in the door, trying it a little bit, <laughs> but then once you experience the benefits, the intrinsic motivation is there to make the time. I think that, you know, when we think about priorities and, and wellness habits, it can all feel a bit daunting, but when we can genuinely notice that it's working or helping us, then that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Julie, do you have any examples of like, um, practices or, or, um, things that you teach through your work that have seemed to really help people understand the value of mindfulness? Yeah, I think that even something as simple as the recognition of like common humanity and and um, in Buddhism, they're called the five hindrances. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but basically there's these five experiences that are so common to the mindfulness practice that they go back 20, 2,600 years. And in 2023 right now, we're still experiencing them. So it's restlessness it's judgment, it's aversion, it's wanting. So like craving and it's noticing these things coming up in our practice. And then, because what tends to happen, people, people don't buy in or they say it's not for me or no, I tried and I didn't like it because these experiences happen. But when we normalize them and say, this is very much part of the practice, everybody experiences this for 2,600 years, then we normalize that. And then we can sit with that a little bit and get to the beneficial place. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. I, I love that in, in, um, in, in, in Hinduism, it's the, the, well, Buddhism and Hinduism have, have a, a lot of crossover and you see kind of like a, a lot of principles that are the same, but kind of have different names and stuff. And, um, is called avidya and avidya is the veil of misperception. And then because you can't necessarily, you can't see that you are perceiving reality incorrectly, then there's four things that fall underneath. And I think that this is the, t I think that this is the direct tie to the five hindrances in, in Buddhism. So because you can't see the veil that is, you can't see that you have a veil in between you and the way that you perceive reality there are four kind of like identifiers and you can get, you can look to those like egoism, aversion, things like that. And you can go, am I, am, do I go through the world with these, with seeing the world through these sort of lenses? Do I have egoism? Do I have an aversion to thing, to something um, unnecessarily? And then that can sort of tell you, okay, how, how badly am I misperceiving the, the red, reality that's in front the of the red me? pill it's, it's the matrix <laughs> yeah right uh -huh. yeah take yeah when yeah. Morpheus gives you the yeah. option to take the red pill you take it and then, and then you, you get spin that little thing on the table and if it stops spinning you know you're dreaming that's right it's <laughs> kind of like the matrix and, and inception, inception. Yeah, 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 yeah. Into, into one it's it's really like those are super powerful <laughs> feelings though like yeah. when I when I think of it's so hard when you're feeling those feelings it's so hard to like step out of them yeah. and go oh this is what i'm yeah. i'm experiencing this thing right now i mean but that's what the mindfulness practice like that's what the sitting and paying attention part is for yeah so that so that those so that you can kind of hear those signals coming through because they're mm. coming through but there's so much noise to the signal when we don't take the time to stop that it's all it all just seems like noise but then when you sit down and you when you set up your mindfulness effort, bells you know yeah, like, like every time a car drives by and you hear it you're yeah. like nope there it is you reduce <laughs> the noise the signal yeah. gets jacked up yeah. and then you can do something about Julie, it it's it's a uh, super validating to, to hear you say that too because like um i feel like i i've 
since starting to go to therapy a couple of years ago, I've, I've been learning so much about myself, but one of the most valuable lessons I've learned so far is about setting boundaries, um, mm-hmm. which I find is a big step towards me um, managing these sort of feelings that feel overwhelming a lot of times where, where, you know, like somebody will ask me to do something, for example, and like, I'm a people pleaser. So I want to be able to do that. But to be able to say no to things is it's hard in the moment. But as soon as the words come out of your mouth and you say no, it feels like such a relief. Did you feel good about saying no to go to the the gym with me today? Yeah, really good. (laughs) And then it positively Um, reinforces it. And then you you get more confident to say no next time because you know that it feels good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and like Jared, to that point, um, like actually... I, I feel good saying no to things like that sometimes because yeah. I know that it's yeah, yeah. important for me to say no to it. Yeah. And like, and then but it it's also become, important for you to say yes to go to the gym with me. Totally. totally like I yeah. need a gym buddy. You, but <laughs> am I going to the gym with you because you need a gym buddy yes. or because I need to exercise today? No, that's no, no, like, no. that's where I, I don't need to, you to exercise, dude. I just need <laughs> you, you to need be to, there to help me. <laughs> no, I know that. Just which is why I have to say I can't no lift the, way, the, the amount I want to lift without having you be behind me and, and say up, up. And do that and like and rub my belly. I'm so torn so because cute. I feel that right now and I want to say yes to you, but also my boundary setting is making me uh, say good no. Job. Do you guys good rub job. each I'm, other's I'm bellies you. after you? Oh, all the time. Yeah, it's always belly rubs. Cool. I'll go with um, you on Monday. Uh, uh, Julie, what's, what, have your, what has your experience been in um, trying to introduce mindfulness in a corporate setting? Uh, that's a good question. Mixed reviews. Um, (laughs) I think that it's, it's growing though. So I've, I've, um, I'm working with like our local police, like RNC here in Newfoundland. And and that's a biweekly program I have with them. So I think that had it only been two months or, or six weeks that, or something short that there wouldn't have been that buy-in because I do really think that for it, or something like this to work, people need to see the benefit themselves, like we said. Yeah. Um, so the people who are willing to kind of stick with it for, um, you know, a longer period of time, the the uptake has been has been good. I'm people again. These conversations come up with boundaries, and and that's becoming really really important, especially in the virtual world where it's very hard to distinguish with even something like Instagram or social media with email on your phone. When am I working? When am I not working? And and being mindful of things like that. So. Mm really i feel genuinely grateful that people are are um interested in pursuing it and um, there's so many benefits i think that when we think about the job market and we think about hiring and and corporate culture and and you know chasing the dream that way it's always about technical skills but the soft skills that we have um compassion empathy the ability to regulate our emotions the ability to be authentic um you know these are all skills that are trainable human capacities too we've just as a society not put very much weight on training them so i'm i'm finding that people are often saying oh i wish i got this 20 years ago um but i do think the shift of conversation is great in and of itself yeah it's definitely come along you can i mean you, you i think i think everybody can tell that it's come a long way in terms of like the public um sort of perception. like pop public perception yeah. pop culture use of like it's it, it, you, like there are definitely drawbacks to the to to the kind of the pop culture understanding of mindfulness and how it's used but like there's just so many more people that are that know what that word is and at least half of what it means yeah. maybe um which is really which is really great and it's and i and i feel like a lot of the pushback it's such an it it can feel so ethereal instead of it's it's so not concrete or at least it's 
it has a longer time horizon in terms of seeing benefit. It's not, um, you know, you can't go in for a 30 minutes. It's well, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to do a short thing and go, Oh, I can very clearly see what I got from that. I mean, it kind of takes <laughs> yeah. a, mm. it takes like, it takes the hat, the formation of the habit over time to really see it. So Julie, um, how can, uh, how can people find your work? How can people stay up to date with the stuff that you're doing over in Newfoundland? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at ease with Julie, or you can find the center for mindfulness as the center for mindfulness NL there. Those are the two Instagram accounts. Um, or go to the website centerformindfulnessnl.ca, um, or you can email me personally to my ease account at info at easemindfulness.com. I'm um, so happy to be having this conversation and sharing this message and normalizing some of these experiences. Sweet, amazing. Uh, this has been uh, this has been really fun, Julie. Thanks mm-hmm. for thanks for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and, and chat with us. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to to chat. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.